What's going on, folks? Welcome to the Spun Today podcast, the podcast that is anchored in writing, but unlimited in scope. I'm your host, Tony Ortiz, and I appreciate you listening. This is episode 168 of the show. And in this episode, I had the pleasure and honor of speaking with Miss Sandra Holtzman. Sandra is an award-winning copywriter. She is an entrepreneur that has started multiple businesses. She is the chief marketing strategist at Marketing Cures. She is an educator teaching both marketing and entrepreneurship, as well as other courses at NYU, FIT, as well as the Kaufman Fast Track course, which is a 12-week hyper-intensive course on entrepreneurship, which I took and is where I had the good fortune of meeting Sandra. And last but certainly not least, she is also a writer. She's the co-author of Lies Startups Tell Themselves to Avoid Marketing, a no-bullshit guide for PhDs, lab rats, suits, and entrepreneurs. Links to which, as always, will be in the episode notes. We went into all of these topics during our conversation. I had a lot of fun speaking with Sandra and getting to know her a bit more outside of the classroom setting. And I definitely got a bunch of takeaways for myself during this episode, as I'm sure a lot of you will as well. Whether you are an entrepreneur that owns their own business, someone who's looking to start a business, whether you're a writer, an educator, whether you're into marketing, Sandra is something of a renaissance woman. So there will be something for each and every one of you in this episode. Sandra, thanks again very much for taking the time and coming on the show. You absolutely have an open invitation to do so in the future because I know folks are going to get a lot from this episode. Oh, and before I forget, happy Thanksgiving to folks listening here in the U.S. It's been a pretty crazy year with COVID, and I know this holiday season is not going to be like most, but I definitely wish you and yours a happy and safe Thanksgiving. And in retrospect, once this is all over, I guess it'll serve as a reminder to cherish and appreciate the things that really matter. And with that, folks, I'm going to tell you about a very quick way that you can help support the Spontary podcast, and then we'll be jumping right into the conversation with Sandra. You know that feeling you get on a Monday when the weekend already feels like a distant memory and the next one feels like it's weeks away? Have no fear, my friends. The Spun Today newsletter is here. And it's here to make it so that your Mondays don't have to suck. Come on, guys. I can lead you to the water, but I can't make you drink it. You have to do that part on your own by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe. I put together a free weekly newsletter that I send out to all of my subscribers every Monday at noon. Here's what's in it. A photo of the week so that you can take your mind off the mundane and enjoy the scenic route. A podcast of the week because I listen to dozens of podcasts every single week from a wide range of shows. And I cherry pick the very best ones and recommend them to you here. The Spun Today newsletter also includes a video of the week, which will include anything from a TED talk to a rap battle to a tasty recipe that I stumbled upon or a dope interview. A quote of the week for some food for thought and a word of the week for my fellow wordsmiths out there to step up your vocab. So you'll be getting five things absolutely for free every Monday at noon in your inbox. 
If you choose to subscribe, all you have to do is go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address, and you'll get the very next one. All right, Spun Today listeners, today we have an absolute treat. Joining us on the episode is Ms. Sandra Holtzman. Sandra is an entrepreneur that has started several businesses. She's an educator. She is a copywriter. She is also an author. She has written the book, Lies Startups Tell Themselves to Avoid Marketing, a no-bullshit guide for PhDs, lab rats, suits, and entrepreneurs. I had the pleasure of meeting Sandra by partaking in the Kaufman Fast Track course, which we'll get into a little bit later. But first and foremost, I just wanted to say thank you, Sandra, for uh, joining me today on the on the Spun Today podcast. Thank you for having me, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So I wanted to dig into more of your background first, if you don't mind. I just wanted uh, for you to share with us a, a bit more of where you grew up, you know, your different career paths that, that you decided to, to partake in, and tell us how Sandy became Sandy. <laughs> um, I grew up in Manhattan, all the way north in the Dykeman Street Projects, and um, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be a choreographer. The choreographer stuff dropped off kind of early because it wasn't a typical thing that a, a girl went into in the 50s and 60s and 70s, whatever. And I thought about wanting to be a writer until I became a copywriter many years later. And so um, I had kind of a disjointed education. In elementary school, I moved from the third best class to the first best class. And then from the first best class to the um, to, to junior high school where I went from the first best class to a three-year SP class. I don't know what they're called, um, like a progressive class. Like the advanced so placement constantly kinds? changing. I'm sorry? Like the advanced placement uh, classes, like AP classes? A little, a little bit, yeah, gotcha. kind of like that. And so I was constantly changing peers, and some groups I fit in with and some groups I didn't fit in with because the clique had started four or five years before I got there, and who the hell was this woman they were suddenly transferring into the class? And then, it, again, it changed. Most of the people I went to junior high school with went to the same high school, which was George Washington High School, and I went to Bronx Science. So, again, another mix-up of, of people, and got some friends from there who have lasted my whole life. And from science, I wanted to be an English major. I, what was I doing in Bronx Science? I don't know, but it was a good education. <laughs> Went to Lehman College after that, so seven years in the same neighborhood, down the block from each other. Graduated with honors and then got, um, I was kind of, I didn't have an official dual uh, major, but I had English and, and film. And then I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do for graduate school, so I applied for graduate school in film and graduate school in English and wound up trying to go to two graduate schools simultaneously in two different states for two different subjects. Wow. <laughs> and it, yeah, I was a little ambitious. Um, and I wound up doing that for a year. Middlebury has the Breadloaf School of English, which meets during four summers and you get your master's degree. I went for the first summer. And then I got my master's degree in cinema studies at NYU and then tried to break into the film industry and couldn't do it because they just weren't hiring women as a rule and didn't have the chutzpah to figure out how to get in. So I, a lot of my friends said, well, you're a writer. So I became a copywriter. And 
all of business I found, or at least the business I was doing, is problem solving. So when you get a creative assignment or you're taking a crew out, which I wound up doing for a while in the film, in the film business, um, you're solving problems. You know, here's the issue. How do you get around it? How do you make it work? And in creative, what you did was, you know, we need an ad. This is what needs to be in it. And then you sit with an art director, you sit alone, and you come up with a solution that'll grab people's attention and speak to them emotionally. So I did that. And it turned out I had quite a knack for that and started winning awards and then went on to be a a copywriter and moved up to um, consumer consumer ad agencies to pharmaceutical ad agencies. And in the early 90s, I got laid off. And that was when the beginnings of mergers and acquisitions started happening across not only pharmaceutical companies, but ad agencies. And so I freelanced for a couple of years and wound up as an associate creative director in Philadelphia. And I commuted for two years, two and a half years, uh, loved it. And then I had, fortunately, I had a business mentor and friends who said, start your own business. So after two years, I got laid off there when they lost a big client and I started my own business. And I was extremely lucky. The client that they lost uh, withdrew his business because they were moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, and they wanted a West Coast ad agency. But he left that aid, he left that company, went to work at a new company, and two months after I started my business, brought me in. And at the same time, I had been freelancing for a consulting company, a management consulting company that had Pfizer as a client. And when the management gig was up, I had become close to the Pfizer client, and she recommended me to a division in Pfizer, and I became the unofficial agency of record for them for 10 years. Wow, that, that's that an amazing break there. Yeah, I was, I was very lucky being in the right place at the right time with the right skills and the right relationship. Absolutely. So, so um, and then I've been in that agency, my own agency, since 1997. So how long is that? 24 years now? pretty good. And I changed the name of the agency along the way. And then everything evolved. So around 2010. And what's the name of of the of the agencies, Sandra? It was was Holtzman Communications. Um, But it's not if you go there, you won't find anything now. So we changed it to marketingcures.com because it had double meaning. And then around 2010, I met some people who suggested I'm cutting out a lot. I wrote the book in about 2010 also. In 2010, I met some people at the Levin Institute, and I went for training and became certified as a Calvin Fast Track facilitator and have been doing that since 2010. And then along the way, I became, uh, I started teaching at Fashion Institute of Technology. Um, I teach several courses there and MYU, where I teach um, just one course in marketing in the Masters in Integrated Marketing at NYU. And I I worked at a few other schools here and there. And I teach Fast Track now for the city. And I teach it for a women's nonprofit organization in New Jersey called the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship. Let's backtrack a little around 2010. Also, I I was uh, brought in to be uh, put together a management team for a company. And I became the chief marketing officer, put together the management team consisting of the CIO, Chief Information Officer, CFO, Chief Financial Officer, 
and the advisory board, which consisted of several people well-known in the field. That gig ended in about eight months, six to eight months, when we wound up getting an investor and we had an exit. And most of the people cashed out except for the CEO who went on to become the CEO of the company that cashed us out. And at the same time I joined, I started another company with a colleague um, that I knew from Pfizer. That lasted about a year, but it didn't work out. And as I tell people, and I told you in the class, my colleague had an incurable disease. And before everybody starts pulling out handkerchiefs, the incurable disease is lack of ethics. So you can't always predict. Yeah, you can't always predict that about people until you actually start working with them. And um, now I'm working on my fourth startup with another colleague who I co-taught with for 10 years at Fast Track. And this company is called, we have two different names for it, depending on whether you come through her or me, but it's still the same company. I call it Marketing Cures GPS, Growth, Pivot, and Sustainability, I think. Um, And hers is Significant Results GPS. And what we're doing is starting in January, we're putting together peer advisory mastermind groups that are going to run a year, three hours a month. And in those groups, entrepreneurs will have eight to 12 in each group, and they will work with each other to set a goal for each individual company, a one-year goal of what they want to reach. And then they'll work with the peers in the group to help each other get to that goal. And the importance of that is there was a Harvard study done that 97%, I think, of people who work with other people are successful. So, and I use the African proverb, If you want to get somewhere fast, go alone. If you want to get somewhere far, go with people. And so we all need a support system, whether it's um, official, unofficial, informal, informal. And these mastermind groups form a support system that lasts well beyond the one year. And the first one I worked on, actually I've worked on a couple. First one I worked on, they're still meeting. And that that group was over almost a year ago. So That's awesome. um, It's Yeah, it's very powerful, especially in COVID times, because people are feeling isolated as entrepreneurs anyway. Very true. It makes it even harder. And I I, I can even see a a, a, a microcosm of that concept in the Fast Track course uh, that, that we took. And just, you know, working together like in groups and the bonds that that we that we formed. And I can already tell that they are going to be lasting relationships, uh, some of them. So that, you know, it breeds uh, sort of kind of like accountability. And, you know, you, you don't want to leave your like group mates th- uh, down and you want to help. And, you know, it's it, it definitely translates in that way as well. Absolutely. You're nurturing and cheerleading each other. Very true. And, and, you know, when I when I started in New York, um, when I started my business in 1997, I had just been commuting to Philadelphia for close to two and a half, three years. All of a sudden, I'm working from my apartment. And if my computer goes out, I can't call the guy down the hall and have him come running because he's in Philadelphia. And so all my (laughs) support system was in Philadelphia and I had to start recreating it from scratch in New York. And it took a while. And the other thing of starting your own business is people don't understand that um, some people can't handle the loneliness. I don't call it loneliness, but they get lonely. So, for instance, I was had a colleague from my old agency in New York, and she started her own business. And we met at a networking thing. She was so excited. and It was great and all that. And then I met her about three months later, four months later. And she said to me, I went back on staff. And I said, what happened? And she said, I couldn't stand being alone all the time. 
And that never occurred to me. And I started thinking, when I started my business and all this business was coming through the door, I ordered out lunch and I was on the phone with the client while eating my lunch. I ordered out dinner or I went to dinner alone, but I was always busy and I never felt lonely. So I guess entrepreneurship is not for everybody and you have to figure out where your priorities are, both commercially in terms of business and personally and emotionally. Can you work alone? Do you need the water cooler concept? Do you need to be able to talk to people? Um, and this is why being in a, um, in a mastermind group helps because you form those relationships that are of value and not just people you know. The people who you can turn to for help and who can turn to you for help. Exactly. And, and, and you have, I would imagine, like, like, uh, like-minded individuals, but also people that are going through similar situations and you can bounce ideas off each other and coping mechanisms. Right. And when you reach a certain level, your business is in a certain level, there's expertise that people can share. So somebody may be a social media maven and help you with that if that's not your expertise. And you may be a real estate maven and be able to help them with leases and brick and mortar purchases, which they may not have. So everybody contributes their expertise to each other. And that's really empowering and really, really great. Absolutely. I can definitely see that. Sandy, I want to, I want to take a step back and ask you a quick question about when you mentioned that you were, when you were trying to break into the the film industry, was that like, to what capacity was that? Were you like writing screenplays or were you? No. Um, uh, I always told everybody I was never going to be the great American novelist. I didn't have a novel in me. So when I actually wrote the book, I would kind of shock myself, but no, I broke in. I wanted to be a producer. I, tried to get into the Directors Guild of America, and I could have bought my union card, but if you don't have the contacts, having a $2,000 union card is $2,000 then. I don't know what it is now. Um, Without having the contacts, having the union card was irrelevant. And so I tried to break into the industry, and they just I wasn't there yet emotionally Mm -hmm. and business-wise. And also the industry wasn't hiring women. And so I go out on interviews and they say, we don't hire women. And I'd say, that's illegal. And they say, so what? <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, and then people were going for their PhDs and they had rejection letters from universities and from film schools and, and, um, and business all over their walls. They could wallpaper their entire apartment with rejection letters. And the best, probably the best thing that ever happened to me was I got turned down from the PhD program and I had to go out and be out in the real world. And that really, don't forget the seventies was a very different time. Yeah. I I was going to, I was going to interject real quick and just say, I I can't like, I, I would imagine most people listening wouldn't be able to like imagine that type of like response from from someone you know nowadays with like PC culture and 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 all this kind of stuff, but back in the day it's like you don't have social media you don't really have an outlet as an individual to to you know voice concerns and stuff like that so people could you know employers or whomever could or people in positions of power could very easily tell you just tell you to you know fuck off and and you really yeah, have no recourse no, no cancel no cancel culture exactly no, yeah. no, no public embarrassment. Uh, no, no alternative. So, and, you know, don't forget the fifties generation was growing up and all of a sudden everything was starting to explode. You had gay rights, you had black power, you had women's rights all happening at the same time. 
plus the explosion of the marijuana drug culture mm-hmm. um, and the hippie dumb. And so, you know, music was changing. Everything was changing. The theater, the theater, film, every, all the arts were in the avant-garde. It was a very exciting time to be alive and very confusing for traditionalists. You know, film industry was and probably still is very traditional for men, white men. Yeah. And it's true of most industries. You look at the top and there are white men. Yeah, like the the C suite and the the folks in the in the board of directors and and at the top right. are definitely skewed yeah. towards a uh, white the barber, men. Right, the Barbara Cochran's of the world are rare, less rare absolutely. now, but still, you know. So that's did I answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And um, but you know, fo- folks with with the the experiences such as yours and the ability to have come from that to kind of like carve your own path paved the way for the fact that things are changing now so that's uh yeah that's that's amazing now another question i have for you is you mentioned that first uh, i'm not sure if it was the the first company but the company that had the eight month exit and i just wanted to highlight that that's one of the things that we touched on uh during the course the difference between a life spot a a lifestyle business versus a growth business and a lifestyle business from my understanding and you know definitely correct me if i'm wrong is a business that that you establish and you run and it supports your lifestyle. So you you kind of like uh, work in it or, or, or run it, but it's an ongoing business that, you know, pays for your mortgage, pays for your expenses, et cetera, and supports your lifestyle. Whereas a growth business is a business that has the intended goal of selling itself off to an investor in the future. And in this case, that business uh, would be considered, uh, by my understanding, a, a growth business. My question is: Was that the was that the goal um, to sell it in eight months, or did you guys have a longer term plan, or was it like a surprise that it wound up selling and becoming a growth business? No, we were looking. We were looking for. It was a little complicated. I don't want to get into the whole story, but we were the marketing arm of a company that couldn't afford to hire us. So we formed a separate company, and the other company would absorb us if we brought in investment. So the goal from the beginning was to bring in investment and to grow the other company. So it was to first to get absorbed and then to grow the other company. But once we had the – and the company the company that absorbed us was already public. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so we had, to, we had to do that. But, yes, we brought in a, an angel investor, and that enabled us to raise the money to get absorbed some of us and some of us left the company cashed out. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Now, it was, it was, you know, it's a wild ride and people don't understand. Most people coming up in the entrepreneur world don't understand that when you go to do something like that or to go public, it's like getting on a roller coaster and you're working 24 seven to make that happen. And I think I told the story in the class, but um, when I had my first office, I was down the block from, the Blue Water Grill. And I went in one day to order out lunch. And while I was at the bar waiting for it, I ran into somebody who was a, um, uh, a biotech entrepreneur. And so after we chatted, exchanged cards, and we're still in touch, I said, so how long have you been divorced? And he did a double take. Like, how did I know that? Because I knew everybody who was working in a launch company was probably divorced probably had at least two mortgages on their house to raise money. That's called skin in the game, which a lot of entrepreneurs today do not understand and will not take that risk. And so 
you know, he, he looked at me and, and, and he told me and he said, how long have you been divorced? And I said, I've never been married. And it was like, see, <laughs> same <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> same, both sides of the same coin. Yeah. You, um, you circumvented the whole marriage thing. <laughs> you knew where it was going. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I've worked with people who were entrepreneurs in large fortune 500 companies where they were traveling five days a week across the country. And, one of them made a guarantee to his wife that he would always be home on the weekend. That's how absorbing this was when you were launching a business, especially in tech. And people don't understand that. People don't understand that you can't have everything. Yeah. And um, it's, 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 it's a huge sacrifice. It's all, all consuming. And, and to the folks that, that happen to have like families and, and try to embark on something like that, I would imagine it's it's like a complete like family undertaking. Like your your wife's in it, your kids are in it to 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 an extent in terms of like the sacrificing and you know not having mom or dad around because they're you know embarking on this on this journey. And I could definitely see the 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 ripple effect strains that that would have on relationships. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, I, I it's 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 difficult. Even when I was writing the book. My one of my clients was supposed to co-write the book with me. We said he lives in Cincinnati and or lived in Cincinnati at the time. He's since retired and lives in Florida now. He lives in Cincinnati in this really nice house with three kids and a wife who worked full time. And I was in New York. And he said, Sandy, you know, if you come here, I'm going to be distracted. If I go to New York, you're going to be distracted. So let's get a suite in a hotel in Chicago, which was kind of sort of maybe halfway and spend a week and just knock out the guts of the book. And I said, fine. And that was, that came up in around March or April. I think in June, he got a job as a CEO and I knew right then he wasn't going to be able to write the book, but I kept asking him and he kept saying, yeah, next month, next month, next month. And September I wrote and I said, this isn't going to happen. He goes, yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. And then I found a co-author who would write the book with me. And that's how we got the book done. But it's it's the distraction of everyday life and what you're doing in terms of business that makes it very hard to sit down and focus on writing something or, or focus on any kind of project. Definitely. And, you know, it's kind of like a, you, you have to like pick and choose your battles. Like with me, I've, I've uh, I think I mentioned to you, like I self-published two books. One of them is uh, definitely not the you know, next grade American novel, but it is a, <laughs> my first attempt at, at one, um, uh, or not really at one, but it's, uh, a, a time travel, uh, sci-fi fantasy of a group of righteous individuals that go back and try to like right the wrongs of the past. And, um, the other book is a more of a, I'm not sure if you've ever read uh, Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. It's kind of like a motivational, uh, uh, inspirational type of, you know, uh, kick in the ass kind of book um no i haven't uh, i highly recommend it to, to everyone especially creatives you know i'll send you uh links to it i've mentioned it on the podcast a bunch of different times and i'll link to it in the episode notes for anybody listening but um that's the book that got me to write my first book which was kind of like an homage to the to to stephen pressfield's book it was i i used to do a lot of uh, and i still do a lot of uh, free writing so it's just like pen to paper write whatever comes out and I started seeing this theme, you know, I have a, a bunch of different notebooks and I do it freehand. And I started seeing this theme of 
of kind of like me speaking to myself and trying to motivate myself to to write something like i strung strung along uh, a bunch of those free writing pieces and you know wanted to go through the process of figuring out you know how do i you know bring this out to the public and self-publish and like i told myself how to do all that stuff with the help of you know Stephen pressfield's book and listening to podcasts about self-publishing etc i i say all that just to say that it was kind of like a conscious decision to pick and choose my battles because i you know i work full-time i you know married have two kids now at the time had had uh was before uh we had our, our first son and I had, I had to take advice from Stephen Pressfield and also from uh, Stephen King's book uh, on writing, uh, his memoir, which, which is great as well. And it says that you have to make a conscious decision basically to treat it like a is it, business. Is it was Stephen King's book scary? Uh, no, no. <laughs> it's actually uh, the book. I worked, I worked on this. When I worked at Warner Brothers, I worked on this signing. And I couldn't, I couldn't read the book. I sat in the, I sat in the movie theater, cold, um, curled in a fetal position because I was terrified. Oh, damn. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's actually, it's a, it's a great book. It's on like the writing process in general, and he he tells you uh-huh. about his experiences with with uh, writing his books and like when he first got published, and he tells a, a crazy story actually when he wrote uh, Cujo he he was so he he used to drink a lot and he was coked up and he literally did not remember writing the book at all like he says to this day he literally does not remember writing one word but he you know he wrote it um so he tells like stories like that and they they give like really practical advice that that i appreciated and 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 implemented myself of saying okay from this time to this time this is when i'm gonna write you have to be very protective of your time form some sort yeah. of, of ritual if you if you need to make sure yeah. your family's on board yeah. and let them know that from you know even if it's 10 p.m to uh, three in the morning this is the don't interrupt me time or like for me the that, pro- that's how I, I can't remember the author sorry to interrupt but no, that's no. how he wrote jaws every morning um he spent three hours writing in the afternoon he played tennis or he'd do other things but every morning he he, he spent three solid hours writing nice absolutely and that was like similar to the, the approach that I took. It, it, it was like, especially after we had our first son, I had, you have to kind of sort of get creative with uh, wh- when and how you find time. So with me, with the podcasting and, and the writing, which is kind of like a like a dual, dual effort uh, of sorts, uh, used to wake up at 530 in the morning, work on either, you know, w- website stuff or like posts to, to help promote my, my writing or, you know, uh, uh, or the podcast and I would do that until 6.30 in the morning, then get ready to go to work. And then, uh, wow. you know, commute to work, come back home. And then at night, my, my, my wife and my son would go to bed relatively early, around 9 p.m., 10 p.m. And then I, you know, would stay up until from that time till like 1 or 2 in the morning. You know, it's a like a, a dedication of sorts that you, if you choose to, uh, you know, do something, like you have to, like they said, and... And I guess what I'm saying now is like be creative with your time and and f- figure out how you're gonna make it work. Like how you were just saying with the first gentleman that you were attempting to write the book with, and then you had to come to terms with the fact of okay, this isn't gonna work this way, and you have to figure out how to make it work. Well, kudos to you. Um, not only did you write two books, but you self-published, which is a whole other business venture. I I found a publisher. 
and either way you have to promote the book but i don't i can't imagine having to self-publish yeah definitely i i I got a lot of help from a podcast called the creative pen podcast which i'll i always mention on, on on my podcast and it's uh joanna penn which is a thriller author and an entrepreneur herself and she tells her her story and she she pretty much worked in in corporate america for you know 10 to 15 years while you know writing on the side and eventually was able to make uh enough money from her pub- publishing business to uh, be able to leave the corporate life and focus solely on on writing and you know she has a podcast and she's very open with with all her like information and her and her strategies and eventually she was able to turn into like a six-figure business and her husband was able to to leave his job and come help her run the business. And, you know, she gets to do what she loves. She's self-published, I think, like a dozen novels and like half a dozen other books about writing and the business of writing and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I definitely get a lot of um, good practical advice from from her in that podcast that, you know, helped me find out like what Scrivener is, which is a, a writing program. And that helps you format the book in, you know, for Kindles and also for paperbacks. And, you know, I learned like uh, a wealth of information, what Amazon KDP is, where where folks can upload their manuscripts and put them on sale uh, through Amazon and then the difference between being exclusive to Amazon and going wide and being able to do the same thing, but uh, in terms of uploading your manuscript, but selling it on like Barnes and Noble, for example, and Kobo and all these other platforms, it's stuff. I, I guess when you when you get into it, and and like I said, when you want to focus on on something and be creative with your time and you know figure things out, you you gravitate towards folks putting out that information. At least that, that's how Absolutely. it's been for me. So I def- definitely want to segue now into you into more about your book. So I'll say the title again is Lies That Startups Tell Themselves to Avoid Marketing, a no-bullshit guide for PhDs, lab rats, suits, and entrepreneurs. So I guess my first question would be, if do you have any like specific rituals or times that, that you choose to write? Well, for the book, I wrote chapter one, and I spent a year rewriting chapter one. And <laughs> and I kept writing it and writing it and writing it. And I had, I think, uh, well, I don't, I know, I had a form of writer's block. I couldn't move on past chapter one. I was stuck. And this, this happened when my first co-author, uh, I was talking to him. And then when I got my second co-author, she lived in Lambertville at the time in New Jersey. And so I would come down to the weekend. And on Saturday morning, we would spend three hours writing. And then on, and then we just go and play the rest of the weekend. And then on Sunday, we'd spend another hour or two. And so we wrote the book in about six or eight months, maybe a year. Nice. And then, and yeah, the way she said, the way she talked to me was, let's put aside chapter one and we'll come back and work on that last. Let's get everything else down. And I was so worried about chapter one that I didn't realize that words can be changed. You can change the thoughts. Everything can be edited. It could be. It could flow better. Articulation of concepts could be better. And so, when the year was over, we never went back and changed chapter one because I had really done it. <laughs> nice. And, um, <laughs> and so that was my style. Now, when I write, I blogged for about a year. I was a small business blogger for Fashion Institute of Technologies. I can't remember the name of the blog or for their blog. So I published it for them. First, I started with my own blog. Then I did FIT's blog. 
And so I publish it for FIT first and then run it on my blog um, because they have rights of first publication. And then what I did was after about two and a half years of writing weekly, I took a break for a week and it turned into two weeks and turned into three weeks and I never went back. But two and a half, three years writing every week was a lot. First, I thought, oh, I'm going to run out of subject matter. And I never ran out of subject matter. I just ran out of steam. So now I will post on my blog if I go to a particularly good conference or meeting and I want to share the information that came up or uh, I have a guest blogger whose information I think is important. But blogging, I, I, don't, I don't blog as much as I used to. And I, I've moved on. So um, now I post things about my business and um, information about kind of, I kind of like post as opposed to blog. I post resources for people, connections nice. for people, things that are important, organizations that I think they should look into. Not necessarily join, but get on the mailing list because, you know, you need to know what's going on in the world. And, and everybody's running meetings and everybody's running organizations, but there are a few that are really, really valuable to everybody. I'll post those. That's awesome. And where, yeah. where, where can people find that? Where's your, well, your um, on Facebook, it's Marketing Cures. And sometimes I'll post it on my personal Facebook page. But right now I'm posting pretty pictures of Christmas. Um, and then you can go to marketingcures.com forward slash blog. I will post on LinkedIn and I was posting on Twitter, but for some reason they blocked my account and I haven't been posting anything that would cause that to happen. So I emailed them and asked them to look into it and they never got back to me. So I don't know what happened, but I'm, I'm kind of blocked from Twitter. Oh, damn. So yeah, I'm, I'm not. As you can tell, I'm not broken up about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't, you know, I mean, you want to talk about sexism? Um, I couldn't get my name put on into, I couldn't get my business's name 23 years put into Wikipedia. I hired two different experts and Wikipedia turned me down saying this was self-promotion. So excuse me, is the Madison Avenue ad agency not self-promotion being on Wiki, Wikipedia? I, I didn't get it. So they're biased against women and they're biased against small businesses. And so there are issues even Absolutely. to this day. And this, and this bias is just, you know, against people for whatever reason. So it becomes, it becomes interesting. Yeah, for sure. And you don't, you don't find out that the roadblocks are there until you try and overcome them. Yep, definitely. So, Sandy, quick question regarding when, when you said that you were, uh, you were going to Jersey uh, writing for three hours. How how are you and your co-author? Your co-author is Jean Kondek. Kondek, right? Okay. Yeah. How are you guys like doing the the physical writing? Were you like on pen and paper? Were you on two different laptops? Where was it? Like, what was like the yeah, physical approach have, to writing? We had one. We had one computer, hers, because I was at her place. Mm -hmm. um, and this was before I. I now have like four computers lying around my house. This was before I had a lot of laptops, so I didn't have to sweat the laptop. Um, she had desktop, and we were in Word. And if I thought of something on the way home or, um, you know, when I was traveling, then I, I'd write it down in, in longhand. But um, I, I composed it to computer. Gotcha. Okay. And I guess at the end of – did you guys have an editor or, like, publisher lined up um, already at that point? Or, like, did you start – 
like shopping for one afterwards after writing the the I initial think, manuscript I think we wrote most of the book I can't remember I gotta tell you Tony um, <laughs> no, no we, worries. Um, I think I think we wrote most or all of the book the beginning each chapter has a quote from somebody well-known a thought leader in some areas like somebody who worked with George Soros introduces one chapter. Uh, he, he's in charge of a billion-dollar fund. Um, the guy who launched 123 for Lotus wrote the intro to another chapter. A serial entrepreneur, a serial CEO wrote uh, an introduction to another chapter. So people like that. So we got them. And then my original co-author wrote the introduction to the book, and he's a great writer. But what happened was I went around to a lot of agents, got rejected, and this was right after the... This is right after the 2008 downturn, mm-hmm. the market crash. With the recession. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the recession, So whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, bad, bad times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was actually, I was, um, I was working real estate and, and uh, I was a mortgage oh processor during that time. <laughs> That's when I exited oh, that God. and okay, went into see, corporate America. <laughs> you were in the middle of it. Yeah. Okay, so, you know. So I got a rejection letter from, in the, in the feature film business, they're called readers. They read the proposal, and then they either pass it on or they reject you. So I got rejected. And I got annoyed because I thought it was a lowly person. And so I wrote another letter to somebody else in the organization. And they called me in and talked to me. And they said, look, you wrote the, um, you wrote the proposal wrong. I followed something on the Internet. She said, that's not the way you write the proposal. So she gave me some hints and we rewrote the proposal. And she said, we're not, the agent said, we're not representing you. Nobody's buying business books at this point. So if I wasn't doing a cookbook or a mystery, I was out of luck. And um, (laughs) she said, however, we share office space with a small publisher who publishes business books and they're interested. So I rewrote it, sent it to her, and then um, wound up finding my publisher. By the way, we're all we all worked in the same building. Um, wow, that's ironically, great. <laughs> or coincidentally, yeah, it was great. So they published my book, and now I've lost touch with them because the book has been out for a while. Yeah, but it, it, you don't realize until you publish your own book that you have to do the marketing. You can't just and publishers are really great at this. They get people to carry the book, they sell it into the industry. But if you don't have, if you're not selling to consumers who are going to look for it and creating the demand book isn't going to sell that much definitely so yes i'm on amazon i was in barnes and noble but nobody was going to buy it because they weren't concentrating on the public so then i had to put several thousand dollars into hiring publicists etc etc and the book moved the book is still good because there's no social media in the book social media was just starting to pick up Mm -hmm. other than websites but we didn't write the book for tactics and social media is a tactic. We wrote it for the strategy. What do you do? Why should you market? What's the strategy? And as you know so well from being in the class, tell me who your market is. Don't tell me you're going to be on Instagram and don't tell me you're going to be on TikTok and don't tell me where you're going to be. Where does your customer go? And that's the most important thing. So, you know, the algorithms change, you know, every week. But where is your customer look for what they want? And that's where you need to be, whether it's glamorous or unglamorous. And people didn't understand that. And then there's the other, I went to, I'll read you a couple of the lies. If I build it, they will come. My product is so great that once it's introduced, people are going to find out about it. We don't know how, but that's their fantasy. They're going to find out about it and rush to buy it. 
Yeah. Not going to happen. <laughs> that definitely doesn't happen. <laughs> but this, and this happens with scientists, especially. There's no point in, in promoting my product until it's completely ready. Well, you have to build your market as you're building the product because if you let you want to build a laundromat, okay, or you want to buy real estate for a laundromat, mm -hmm. well, that's great. Let's say you open your laundromat January 1st for argument's sake. Mm -hmm. But if you have if you haven't told people that a laundromat is opening and what the location is and what the deals are, January 1st, nobody's going to show up at your door. You got to promote it while you're while you're working out your deals. Absolutely, and people don't understand that. You have to like it's build up the demand. Right, right. You got you know you got to make people want it. So people don't understand that. Uh, and then, you know, I only need a net, a net, a website. I do public relations first. I have a business plan. I don't need a marketing plan. People try to not spend money or not spend time. And the bottom line is PR is okay. But if you do PR, you do marketing, you don't have a website, where are the people going to go check you out? If you have a website, you don't do PR or marketing. How are people going to know the website is there? <laughs> Very true. It, 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 all, it all works in concert. It's like an orchestra. It all works together. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And the, the last lie was I can get the work done cheaper, which I hear from a lot because a lot of the classes I teach in, entrepreneurs don't pay fees. But an entrepreneur has never said to me or have never answered this appropriately. I go, well, I can get that free. Or, you know, I'll put up a website from here and I can get the website free. And then I ask them, well, can I have your cupcakes for free? And they get all offended that I'm asking for something for free. <laughs> yeah, they want everything for free. So it's a double-edged sword of, actually, it's not. It's like you got to put skin in the game. you gotta, you got to spend money to make money. And if you expect to get everything free and then expect to have people come around and buy your product, there's a disconnect there. And I'm not saying there aren't a huge amount of free services. However, there comes a point where you gotta where you gotta put up a shut up, and a lot of entrepreneurs aren't willing to do that. Definitely, yeah, so yeah you have to have the, the skin, skin in the game. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> that's awesome. And folks, again, yeah. you can uh, uh, pick up San Sandy's book on Amazon. Again, I will link to it in the episode notes. It's called "Lies Startups Tell Themselves to Avoid Marketing." A no bullshit guide for PhDs, lab rats, suits, and entrepreneurs. And it's under, I think it's under ten dollars on Amazon. Nice. So it's, it's not a big investment, and it'll it'll just give you the It's written for for scientists, um, biotech, and stuff. But anybody can read it because it's the same. It's the same argument everybody uses to avoid marketing. I don't need marketing. Let me get the product out. Um, and it sounds like yeah, it has a lot of funda so, fundamental uh, principles to marketing. Right, exactly. Right. Nice. Basic, basic strategies. Awesome. Cool. And Sa Sa Sandy, to segue to, uh, I want to be conscious of uh, and cognizant of, of your time, of course, but just to segue into like your teaching experiences, uh, like you mentioned, and, and the fast track course. Do you have any subjects that you like teaching more than others? Or how has your experience with teaching the fast track course been? And if you could tell us a little bit more about that. I love, I love working with entrepreneurs because they're not there for a certificate. I mean, you get a graduation certificate. They're not there to fulfill a certificate program. They're not there to get their master's degree or a BA. They're there because they want to start a business and they're passionate and they want to be there. And they're like sponges 
give me the information, give me the information. And it's like the excitement and the energy and the passion is very exciting to me as an entrepreneur. So that's probably my first choice, but I teach marketing and I'm passionate about marketing also because so many people do it poorly and teaching the language of marketing before you actually get into the practice. So I like that as well. I'm certified to teach. I, I teach it anyway, but I'm certified to teach fast track new ventures, fast track growth venture, the female entrepreneur and fast track tech venture. So I teach all of those. I coach for fast track. I coach some of the, um, Sometimes they put together coaching sessions for uh, graduates. I coach separately on my own. And for FIT, they have a program called Fashion Business Essentials. It's, I think, 10 sessions or nine sessions. And I put together the syllabus and I hired all the people to teach each segment. So uh, now I just, now an administrator took it over. So I just teach the introductory segment and I teach one other segment and I teach setting a course for your business, which is a four-week course for fashion businesses, then know your market and how to do research, why you need to do research, and then formulating your financial strategy. So three different courses towards a, towards a certificate program. And I teach at NYU. I taught at Baruch. Uh, I, I actually went to Baruch. I graduated Baruch. Oh, yeah? Great yeah. school. Yeah, Prob- definitely. I like Probably that. one of the most unsung heroes of New York City education, really, really great school. I taught um, social media marketing, luxury fashion marketing for startups. I, I think I taught basic entrepreneurship there and briefly taught uh, pharmaceutical marketing, healthcare marketing at another school in the city. And I was scheduled to teach entrepreneurship at New York Institute of Technology. But what happened is COVID came along so they moved all the courses online, and then no one wanted to spend the money to sign up online. They said, well, if we're not going to be there in person, we can get the course cheaper somewhere else. And the whole the whole program collapsed. So that was kind of sad. Oh, wow. And then I was, I was supposed to start teaching for a private school for entrepreneurs coming over from Europe. And unfortunately, COVID hit. And I don't know what happened, but they put everything on hold. I don't even know if the school still exists. Um, it's really, it's really, it's really sad. Yeah. Um, especially with, with the quality of people working there and the number of the amount of effort and money they had to put in to securing a brick and mortar space, to securing, uh, licenses and stuff to be able to teach and be certified, you know, in New York state, all kinds of other stuff. It's, it's, it's sad. Yeah. So that is de- definitely I, a sad time. Yeah. And occasionally, a couple of times I went back to Bronx Science and I um, and a couple of times to NYU where they had high school kids come in and talk about what it's like to be an entrepreneur and be out in the world. And the thing about Bronx Science, interestingly, when I went, it was mostly boys. I don't know what the what the statistical breakdown was, but when I went back, it was mostly girls. And I was so thrilled. Girls in science, girls in math. Wow, that's um, awesome. It was great. Yeah, it was times like changing. It was 20, 30 years later. Huh? Times are changing for sure. Thanks to people exactly. like you. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so it was exciting. So that's it. So where where do you go next, Tony? Well, me, I'm I'm definitely continuing uh, the podcasting, the writing. You know, being creative with my time and and holding myself more accountable. Because, like, for example, with my first novel, it took me three years 
to get it from when I first had the idea, which I still have the notebook. I keep all my all my notebooks where I I like to start writing freehand and just doing like the whole free writing thing and coming up with ideas that way. And then I translate that to to the computer and I use a writing program called Scrivener that's like really like user friendly for writers where you can before I used to use Microsoft Word, but like with Scrivener, for example, instead of having to like copy and paste a section and when you want to like move things around, like it literally gives you the option to like drag and drop like this page into this chapter, that page into this chapter. And it's like more, it's like created for writers, the software. Then I eventually translate things there, but I have, so I always write like the date and time on everything that, that I free write. And then I went back after publishing the the novel and I figured like it felt like I took like a year, year and a half. And I look back and it was like three years <laughs> to write the first one. And I was like, oh, wow. oh shit. <laughs> and Did you use a formula? Because a lot of a lot of mysteries and science fictions, they work on they work on formulas. Definitely. I, I, I followed um, Sean Coyne's The Story Grid. He, he has a book called wow. The Story Grid and a, a podcast called The Story Grid. And I took a lot, I listened to a ton of different podcasts uh, as folks listening uh, would know that, you know, I'm always like re- referencing and, and recommending the, you know, he, he's a, he's actually the editor for Steven Pressfield and he's an editor with over like 25 years of experience. And, you know, he teaches about the inciting incident of a story, uh, the, the climax, the resolution and like all the technical aspects to, to story writing. So I try to, uh, like emulate that and again, like kind of like a self-taught type of thing and do it myself. Um, I did not work with intentionally and, and, you know, probably naively, um, did not work with an editor for my first novel. Cause I figured since I'm self, I'm self-publishing, I know all the advice that I'm getting from every single like podcast on writing and every writer that, that, that I read, um, uh, about writing they they always say you know you have to work with an editor no matter what that's number one but you know being stubborn and kind of like wanting to like learn for myself i made the conscious decision of not working with an editor for the first novel with the intention of saying okay their advice you know panned out um they were right <laughs> which, which i can say in retrospect um but since i self-published now i have the ability to work with an editor and you know edit the first novel before this the the second one because it's a the first novel is the one of three uh, the way i envision it in my head and i'm working on the second one actively the so when i finish the second novel it's definitely going straight to an editor and i want to like work out a deal with them to also edit the first novel and you know since it's self-published like i have that flexibility like there's not like a lot of bureaucracy i just literally work with you know find an editor that i that i like and that i can work with and pay them to you know edit edit the book that's good uh, so I'm definitely- when, we, when we wrote the book they gave us an editor but we weren't happy um mm-hmm. they were trying out someone new and then i come from a pharmaceutical background so i'm used to having really serious technical editors so when we were unhappy with the first editor we reached in town pocket and we hired my medical editor and she did a, a, a fantastic job that's awesome yeah it's definitely uh from what I, I i've i've heard from other other people's experiences it's definitely a like a big deal to work with an editor that you can actually get along with and enjoy working with right and when they get to know you 
the nice thing is they know where you go off the rails in your thinking. And so something may make sense to you, but it doesn't make sense to them. And they know where to look out for those little detours. Definitely. But yeah, with me, um, you know, definitely continuing all that. Like, you know, uh, you know, we, we just had our, our second baby. So, you know, um, I have that, that focus again. on family. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I still have my, my nine to five in, you know, financial data, which, you know, a, a large part of, of having the idea to embark on like entrepreneurship and the reason why I took the course with the idea of, you know, one day opening up a laundry and then opening up a, like a second and third store once I, you know, figure out how to make it work is to be able to exit from, you know, the corporate life. And I guess it would be a lifestyle business, but that affords me a, a bit more free time to focus that much more on writing and podcasting, which is my like passion, passion, you know what I mean? Without sacrificing the breadwinning aspect to, you know, helping raise a, a family with, with, with my wife who, you know, also works full time. She actually works for uh, NYU, uh, Langone, the, the hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she works for there. She uh, she's uh financial services. Wow. Yeah. That's a tough job now. Just being in the hospital. Definitely. Well, she, she's, she is in a position where, where thankfully she can work from home. So, you know, she doesn't have to report there every day, but she definitely deals with a lot of the, like the financial side of, you know, the, the this crazy COVID like pandemic and, you know, experience. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, Sandy, I want to, again, be mindful about your time. And I want to thank you so, so much for for taking the time and and sharing your experience and and your expertise with us. Is there anything else? My pleasure. Thank you, Tony. Awesome. Is there anything, like any advice that you want to leave us with, like for writers or entrepreneurs or, or, you know, tell us again where, where folks can find you if they want to look you up online? And again, for everybody well, listening, I'm going to link to all of your stuff in the episode notes, but any closing words? If anyone wants to take my, um, to get into the mastermind group, I'm co-running it with Fran McNeil, who has equal amount of experience with me, but in different areas. You can find that. Uh, you'll put that up, Tony. And otherwise, you can check me out. Um, don't get intimidated by the pharmaceutical stuff. I work in, obviously, fashion and other areas. You can go to uh, www.marketingcures.com and the uh, GPS. We're gonna we haven't put it up yet. I have a separate URL for that, which I don't have in front of me. But I'll give you the description and the URL, Tony. Because of the COVID, these these mastermind groups usually run for about thirty five hundred to four thousand dollars a person for a year. We're doing it for nine hundred dollars for the first year per person. So it's a really good investment. It'll just, if nothing else, and there's a lot else, if nothing else, it will force you to make a commitment to yourself to grow your business. And you're going to be successful whether you want to be or not. Nice. <laughs> but we, only take, we only take people who want to be successful. <laughs> Absolutely. You got, you got to want it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so amazing. Thank you again, Tony. Thank you, Sandra. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time. Take care. We'll be, we'll be in touch. Okay, great. Thank you. And that's the episode, folks. How great was that conversation? I hope you all got as much from it as as I did. And actually, something I was thinking about while listening back to the episode was how I stumbled upon the Kaufman Fast Track course, which is, again, where I met Sandra because she's the instructor of the course. 
And I wanted to mention it to you all just in case anybody listening wants to take the course themselves. I, I highly recommend it. So for me, it was several months ago. And I was, it, it, by the way, it came by way of a, what would sound like an unlikely connection to a course on entrepreneurship. But I was listening to a podcast like I usually am. And it was Matt Hoffa's podcast, Expert Opinion, which is a battle rap podcast or a podcast I would say about hip hop in general, but with a focus on battle rap because that's the world that Matt Hoffa comes from. And he was interviewing Iron Solomon, another battle rapper, both New York guys, both legends within this space. Iron Solomon, whose real name is Aaron Solomon, was speaking about a, a business that he has, which is something along the lines, I, I forget the exact business name, but it's something along the lines of setting up for large events when stage and lighting and crews are needed and stuff like that. His company that he set up helps facilitate this and he has contracts with, with the city. He has upwards of, I think he said like 100, 100 and something employees or independent contract uh, employees because it's on a rotating basis depending on the size of the different jobs and stuff like that that he gets. And they asked him how he got started in that space. And he said that he stumbled upon this course called Fast Track. And he was speaking to things that, you know, a lot of people don't really know about because they, you know, don't take the time to do the research and find out and see what opportunities and useful tools are out there and available. And he mentioned how the New York City Department of Small Business Services pays for this course, I believe it's twice a year, for a group of applicants that that apply and, you know, get accepted into, into the program. Otherwise, the program is a, a paid program. I believe it's like $1,500 or $2,000 for the, for the course. But through this New York City uh, Department of Small Business Services, you're able to, again, sign up. And if you're accepted, you get to take the course for free and you... You know, it's the same exact course. You get this wealth of knowledge and information from a knowledgeable instructor like Sandy, as well as the dozen plus other entrepreneurs that are taking the course with you. In my case, the the course that I got accepted into, it was 17 of us, if I'm not mistaken, 16, 17 of us. And you get to learn from each other and grow. And you have for life all the tools that Kaufman Fast Track sets you up with online it's a very intensive six hours a week, two nights a week for 12 weeks course where you learn fundamentals of business, like creating your business plan, learning how to do research on who your customer is, learning how to target your customer from a marketing perspective, fundamental things like setting up an LLC, profit and loss statements, and so much more. What was really important for me also in taking the course was the relationships that I formed with some of the people in the class that I hope continue to grow. It's good because obviously you learn from each other, you bounce ideas off each other, but you have people that are somewhat in the same space, mental space of wanting to start a business or just started a business or have experience with with the business already that you can draw on. It was a really valuable experience for me. And I'm going to link to both the New York City Department of Small Business Services in the episode notes, as well as the Fast Track. If anybody wants to check out the courses, because as Sandy mentioned in the episode, they do have other courses available as well. And I just wanted to share that little story of how I came across the course in the first place. And 
honestly, after I signed up for it, because it was several months ago, I completely forgot about it. I kind of did it off of, eh, sounds interesting. Let me sign up for it. I don't think, you know, I'm going to be selected. Then I was. And it actually worked out perfectly because normally with my work schedule, I probably would not have, have had time to make it to the course um, in person. But since COVID, I guess uh, kind of like a blessing in disguise, you know, I've been working from home and the course was virtual. So we, we did it all through Zoom. So even though I'm sure the experience wasn't exactly the same as it would be had the course been in person, but I guess the silver lining for me, since the course was virtual, I was actually able to take it. And otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been able to. Either way, just wanted to share that with you folks. Again, I'll link to a lot of the things that we spoke about during this episode in the episode notes, as well as Sandra's book, which you all should definitely check out. It's available on Amazon. The title, again, is Lies Startups Tell Themselves to Avoid Marketing, a no-bullshit guide for PhDs, lab rats, suits, and entrepreneurs. Sandra, thanks again very much for giving us some time and coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. To everybody listening, I wish you again a very happy and safe Thanksgiving. Try to make the best of it. Look for those silver linings. And that's the episode, folks. Here's some outro information and some additional ways that you can help support the Spun Today podcast if you so choose. Peace. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you're enjoying the show, do me a favor. Rate and review it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to help out the show in other ways... I'll give you a one-stop shop of sorts to do so. Go to spuntoday.com forward slash support. That's where you'll find a ton of different ways to help support this show, such as shopping on Amazon. If you do any shopping on Amazon, like most of the world, I ask that you do so by clicking on any of the Amazon banners on my website. This will take you to Amazon where you can do your shopping like you normally do, It will not cost you anything extra, but I will get credit for driving traffic to their website. Speaking of Amazon, they fulfill a bunch of the merch that I have available. If you go to spuntoday.com forward slash support, you're going to find a brand new merch section where you'll find the iconic Podcasts vs. Anybody Super Soft Premium Cotton t-shirt. You'll also find the legendary Spun Today Podcast tee, which is in the style of the New York City Plastic Thank You Bags logo. For my fellow Dominicans out there, I have a dope Dominican Escudo t-shirt. You know where the Lacoste or Polo shirts have their little logo? Picture that, but instead, a Dominican Escudo. All available now in a variety of different colors for men and women in all sizes. In the Spun Today merch section, which again is at spuntoday.com forward slash support, you'll also find a bunch of other t-shirt designs, long sleeve t-shirts, short sleeve t-shirts, color changing coffee mugs, and much, much more. Check out all the merch at spuntoday.com forward slash support. All of my short stories can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash short stories. The free writing pieces that I read, share, and review during the free writing session episodes of this show can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash free writing. 
There you can read all the pieces that made the podcast as well as tons and tons of others. My books are available in any digital format of your choice, whether it's Kindle, Apple's iBooks, Kobo, you name it. They're also available in paperback. You can check them out at spuntoday.com forward slash books. My debut novel, Fractal, is a sci-fi time travel story of a group of righteous travelers that attempt to right the wrongs of the injustices of the past. My nonfiction, Make Way For You, is a collection of tips for getting out of your own way. So if you need some motivation, inspiration, and a good old-fashioned kick in the ass, that'll be the read for you. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash books or search for those titles on Amazon. Another great and free way that you can help support this show is by subscribing to my newsletter by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe. You'll get a photo, podcast, video, quote, and word of the week every single Monday at noon. What else do you have to look forward to on a Monday? Plus, you'll be the first to know whenever I publish a new book. And if for whatever reason you choose to, you can unsubscribe at any time. Go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address, and you'll get the very next one. At spuntoday.com forward slash support, you'll also find links to my Patreon, Kofi, and PayPal donation pages. Patreon and Kofi allow you to make recurring donations per episode, and you even get some bonus content for doing so. PayPal allows you to make a one-time donation to the show. For my fellow writers and creatives out there, a really cool way for you to be featured on this show is to respond to my five-question Spun Today questionnaire. I'll read your responses on a future episode of the show and share them with the Spun Today community. Think about it. If your responses could potentially spark inspiration in someone else, why not share that? To do so, go to spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Spun Today on both those platforms. Check out and like the Spun Today Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Spun Today. I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the Spun Today YouTube page. Just search for Spun Today on YouTube or click on any of the YouTube icons on my website. There, you'll not only get the full versions of this podcast, but you'll also get bonus content like shortened episode clips and much, much more. And as always, folks, substitute the mysticism with hard work and start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. Thanks for listening. I love you, Aiden. I love you, Daddy.